Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to a Musical Challenge, your weekly helping of random music conversation based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, and alongside me is Chad Knight. This week, we're going to be talking about number ones. We're going to start a series dealing with the number ones from starting back in the 40s and work our way up through as far as we can in the 2000s. Just a little history for you, a feature of the July 27, 1940 issue, the 10-position National List of Best-Selling Retail Records, is kind of where Billboard came to be. That's where it started. So back in 1940, and you know, prior to that, Billboard had its featured lists, the last national sheet music of bestsellers, records most popular for music machines, which was compiled from national reports from phonograph operators, and songs with most radio plugs from a few New York radio stations. The national list of best-selling retail records. Oh God, that's a mouthful. However was the first to pull retailers nationwide on record sales. Uh, the new chart was termed a trade service feature based on 10 best-selling records for the past week at a selection of national retailers from New York to Los Angeles. So with that being said, first of all, hey, Chad, how's it going? It's going it's going fine, man. I mean, really, when you read that, I mean, what a bunch of horseshit. I mean, oh, the way... Oh, the, oh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine getting, getting all excited because... What was the highest bought sheet music last week? Well, you know, and I'll tell you what, that is a mouthful. I mean, Billboard Hot 100, perfect. Yeah, and that's no, what how this about the record the most popular for music machines. One just like the shit that played the best on the jukebox. <laughs> I mean, and think about it, it's it's basically the same thing. You know, the the Hot 100 came out of this this uh, grouping here, but mm-hmm, right, it's just it's a matter of just the way they, they wanted to make sure that you weren't confused about where the music was coming from. Oh, you know what? It's probably like when those places make a new job and they want to make it sound legit. Yeah, it so could be. So they give it like a really long, fancy, schmancy name. You mean like they call me project coordinator. And what is your, <laughs> what do you officially do there? I'm a project manager. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. So, all right, you know, it's one of those things. This is not our music. No, no, that's, I think we both found this out when we were researching this. This is definitely before our time. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are some stuff in the 50s I enjoy, but the 40s? It was it, hard. It's a snooze fest. It, it really is. I mean, especially, I mean, I'm a classic rock guy. You're a classic rock guy. I like some of the oldies, which predates some of the classic rock, um, predates even some of like the Beatles type stuff, the Elvis stuff. But listening to this, is it was it was difficult. It was really, really difficult to try to get into it yeah and i and i had that same problem so we're going to give you the song we're going to tell you a little bit about the artist we might talk about the song a little bit uh we'll give you a clip of the song like we always do but really we're not going to have a whole lot to say about these songs in most cases and and not particularly and i'll be honest and i'm going to be a little harsh on this one it's not going to be very much good stuff in my opinion because There's the occasional song that you'll hear that like, oh, I didn't know what the title of that was because there's a lot of songs out there. Even nowadays, it's like, I like this song, but I never knew what the hell it was called Yeah. until now. But there's a few of these that, as we had mentioned before the show, I'm wondering what people were thinking to actually buy it this many weeks. 
Well, let's just jump into it. Let's get started here. We're going to start in 1940. Now, this was the year that the what became the Billboard Top 100 actually started. Started in July of that year. Right, almost August, July, the end yeah, of July. Yeah, the end of actually. July. There was their first week that they switched over from sheet music into music played, uh, well, jumping around in a bandstand with your arm up your ear, whatever. Uh, radio machine. Arm <laughs> up your ear. I, I would pay <laughs> someone to see that. I'm sorry. Okay, so, you know, it wasn't the best analogy. Oh, I'm just... Busting your chops, you know that. So, let's get started with the first number one, 1940. The song, oh, and how we said what was the number one song of the year is the song that was at the top of the chart for the longest period of time. Right, and there, there may be some years that have the same, like, an equal number of weeks, like five weeks for a couple different songs, and we'll touch on that. Yeah. But generally, it's going to be one song that kind of predominated the whole year. And when you get right down to it, there was actually only two number one songs in 1940. And the one that we've got was there for 12 weeks. Uh, it's called I'll Never Smile Again by Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra with Frank Sinatra and the Pied Pipers. Now, that's a mouthful. Can you imagine putting that on a CD now? It'd have to use, like, the <laughs> smallest font ever. And it would go all the way around? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's listen to a clip to get started. This song sat for 12 weeks in the number one spot in 1940. A bit about Tommy Dorsey. Thomas Francis Dorsey Jr. was an American jazz trombonist, composer, conductor, and band leader of the big band era. He was known as the Sentimental Gentleman of Swing. God, even the names they gave themselves or got were just like, bleh. Yeah, it's, it's not fun, but go on. Anyway, he was called this because of his smooth-toned trombone playing, his technical skill on the trombone gave him renown among other musicians. So does that mean he was a tromboner? I think it was a trombonist. Okay. He was the younger brother of bandleader Jimmy Dorsey, and after Dorsey broke with his brother in the mid-1930s, he led an extremely popular and highly successful band from the late 1930s into the 1950s. He is best remembered for standards such as Opus One, Song of India, Marie, On Treasure Island, and his biggest single hit, I'll Never Smile Again. Honestly, listening to this song, I wanted to go to sleep. I would agree. Um, some of the stuff from back then, too, I don't know if it's the recording media or whatever, it's just harsh. Mm -hmm. um, I have to say, though, I mean, having Frank Sinatra join in on it, Sinatra really didn't join with people until later in his career unless he figured there would be some kind of benefit for him. Yeah, I can so see that. For him to actually get involved with this, he must have seen something. So, I mean, it's, as we're going to probably say this a lot, not my cup of tea, but <laughs> it's it's music. It is what it is. Th that's the best way to put it. All right, so let's jump right into 1941. Ferenci, I think, it's, it's spelled F-R-E-N-E-S-I. I believe it's German. This was an instrumental by Artie Shaw and his orchestra. Here, we'll just listen to this quick. Mm -hmm. 
This song sat atop the number one for the most time in 1941. 11 weeks. Can you believe that? 11 weeks and there's no words. That's almost half a year, isn't it? 11 weeks? No, a year is, is 52 weeks, oh. but it's a good, almost it's a, almost quarter, a quarter, quarter a week. Yeah. yeah. It's still pretty impressive for an, for an instrumental back then. But then again, well, let's be honest, though. A lot of stuff back then was instrumental. That's true. So, Artie Shaw, born Arthur Jacob Arshawaski. I can see why he changed it. Yeah, I can too. Was an American clarinetist, composer, bandleader, and actor. Also an author, Shaw wrote both fiction and nonfiction. Widely regarded as one of jazz's finest clarinetist. Yep, that's the word. It's right there, clarinetist. <laughs> Shaw led one of the United States' most popular big bands in the late 1930s through the early 1940s. Though he had numerous hit records, he was perhaps best known for his 1938 recording of Cole Porter's Begin the Beguine. Prior to the release of Beguine, Shaw and his fledgling band had languished in relative obscurity for over two years, and after its release, he became a major pop artist within short order. Two years, those poor bastards. I know, just it's been uh, flinging nickels back then. Anyway, the record eventually became one of the era's defining recordings. Musically restless, Shaw was an also an early uh, proponent of what became known much later as third stream music, which blended elements of classical and jazz forms and traditions. His music influenced other musicians, such as John Barry in England, with the vamp of the James Bond theme, possibly influenced by Nightmare, which also had a similar vamp to Kurt Weill's Lonely House. So, I don't know, I had a hard time listening to this one, because I have a hard time listening to clarinets. Clarinets tend to be very... Shrill. Shrill or screechy or... If, if it's high clarinet, yes. I mean, because think about it, think about polka. 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 Uh, polka music. There's a lot of clarinet that goes on with that. So, I mean, being to any church fests around here, if you get a true, honest polka band, you're going to have tuba. Yep. Clarinet. Yep. And accordion. Yep. At very least. I played clarinet for a while in, in middle school, actually. So, I'm okay with it. I actually enjoyed this one. Did I, you? Yeah. I would listen to it over and over again. It hurt. It, it hurt my ears. It did get a little screechy. Um... But then again, that's I I was okay with it. All right, fair enough. Jumping to 1942, Moonlight Cocktail by Glenn Miller and his orchestra with Ray Eberly and the Modernaires. Now, you got three different groups put together here, basically. This number one lasted for ten weeks. Alton Glenn Miller was an American big band musician, arranger, composer, and band leader in the swing era. He was the best-selling recording artist from 1930 to 1943, leading one of the best-known big bands. Miller's recordings included In the Moon, Moonlight Serenade, Pennsylvania 65,000, Chattanooga Choo Choo, A String of Pearls, At Last, I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo, American Patrol, Tuxedo Junction, Elmer's Tune, blah, 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 blah. He was traveling to entertain U.S. troops in France during World War II. Uh, Miller's aircraft disappeared in bad weather over the English Channel. Let's take a listen. Couple of jiggers of moonlight and as a star. Four in the blue of a June night and one guitar. Takes in a couple of dreamers and there you are. Lover's Hill, the moonlight cocktail. The rest of the guys in here are uh, Raymond Eberle, or er, er, Eberle. Uh, was a 
vocalist during the Big Band era, Eberle sang with the Glenn Miller Orchestra. That is literally all I could find on this guy. Really? Yes. And the Modern Airs was an American vocal group best known for performing in the 1940s alongside Glenn Miller. That is both of their claims to fame, is the fact that they got up on stage with Glenn Miller. Okay, so not a whole heck of a lot to say. I don't know. What were your thoughts on this one? You know, this one, actually, I didn't mind too bad or, or too much. I thought this one was actually done pretty well. My problem with things like this are the guy who gets all the all the accolades is Glenn Miller. Sure. Guy doesn't sing. Guy doesn't play an instrument. Well, I mean, he probably plays an instrument, but at this point, he was already just directing the... Uh, he was just conducting. Yeah, he was conducting the band, the orchestra. So it, to me, it seems a little shady, but that was the way... And you'll see that a lot of these where it's, and his orchestra. I, I, I noticed that a lot on the, a lot of the titles. Especially in the 40s. Right. And you see it scattered through the 50s and 60s even. There's still some of those and his orchestra type groups. But but then as soon as the electric twanger came on, then <laughs> so much for the orchestras. All right. So up next we have uh, 1943. I've heard that song before by Harry James and his orchestra with Helen Forrest. Harry Hag James. Wow. What a middle name. Hag. Or maybe it's Hog. It's H-A-A-G. Uh, sounds a little German. Yeah. He, so he was an American musician who's best known as a trumpet-playing band leader who led a big band from 1939 to 1946. He broke up his band for a short period in 1947, but shortly after he reorganized and was active again with his band from then until his death in 1983. He was especially known amongst musicians for his astonishing technical proficiency as well as his superior tone and was extremely influential on up-and-coming trumpet players from the late 1930s into the 1940s. He was also an actor in several motion pictures that usually featured his bands in some way. Let's express the sound of it here. It seems to me I've heard that song before It's from an old familiar score I know it well, that melody Now, before we go any further, I want to I want to apologize. If you're out there and you like this kind of music, I'm sorry. We're, we're not putting a very good light on it right now, but that's our personal taste. And that's what this... This, this is our take. Yeah, this is our take. That's what our show is about, is our take on music. I give these guys credit for doing what they did with music and how well they did it at their time. But had I lived in the 40s, I don't think I'd have listened to music. You know what, though? If this is all they had, you probably would have, though. That's true. You know, and I'm just going to piggyback on that for a second. I'm, I'm not going to say that this is bad. I mean, because, again, people, if you're into this kind of thing, more power to you. It's not bad. It's just not my cup of tea. It's not something I'm going to go out and listen to voluntarily. I would probably try to find a different station if it came on or probably not turn that station on to begin with. <laughs> that being said... Again, too, at that time, that's what they had. I mean, let's let's just take Back to the Future, for example. I mean, or Stand By Me. Those two movies, they were period portions. Right. And this is they played period music, and that's like, oh, okay, well, you know, if that's all that was on the jukebox, that's, that's what, what you listen on, to. Yeah, I suppose. So now, um, along with this, Helen Forrest was an American singer of traditional pop and swing. She served as the girl singer for three of the most popular big bands in the swing era, Artie Shaw, 
Benny Goodman, and Harry James, thereby earning a reputation as the voice of the name bands. This song was number one for 13 astonishing weeks in 1943. Now, her voice is fantastic. I like her voice. It's a lot of fun to listen to. It's very melodic, mm-hmm. and, and she could sing. And I saw a few pictures of her. She wasn't bad looking either. No, did she, in any of the research, did you know, did she do anything on her own, or was she only kind of a, um, a coattail person? She was pretty much just saying with the big bands. That was her That was her shtick. You know what, though? That's It's unfortunate that she didn't go any further with the voice that she has. Yeah, I would agree. So, 1944, Swingin' on a Star by Bing Crosby. Now, when I say Bing Crosby, what's the first thing you think of? White Christmas. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing that everybody our age thinks of. Well, yeah. You know, you think of Bing Crosby, you think of White Christmas, you think of White Christmas. The old droopy eyes himself. Yeah, you think of White Christmas, and you think of Rosemary Clooney, and... And the other chick that was in that movie? Yeah, what was her name? Vera something. Vera something or other. Right. But, you know, it's just, it's iconic. But Bing Crosby was around for so much time. Oh, he was. And he, I mean, he just had such a killer voice. He did. He was what I would consider a crooner. Yeah, I can see that. You know, he was kind of had that voice, that that shooba-dooba-dooba kind of thing, you know, going on. Oh, but that dude was butter for a voice. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, that was a panty dropper. Oh, well, if I wore panties, I'd let you know. Sure you would. <laughs> no, but, I mean, you know what I'm saying, though. I mean, he had just such a silky, smooth voice that if oh, yeah. he sang you, if he serenaded you as a woman, gone. Done yeah, right yeah. there. Okay. So, a little bit of a quiz here. What is Bing Crosby's real name? Jerry? I don't know. <laughs> How the hell do I know? I was just, it was just one of those questions. It's Harry. Harry Lillis Bing Crosby Jr. was an American singer and actor. Crosby's trademark warm bass baritone voice made him the best-selling recording artist of the 20th century. Having sold over 1 billion records, tapes, compact discs, and digital downloads around the world. That is a billion with a B. Yes, a billion with a B. He was on top of the game for nine weeks in 1944. Let's hear this voice for a bit. Would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar And be better off than you are Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears Kicks up at anything he hears The first multimedia star from 1931 to 1954, Crosby was a leader in record sales, radio ratings, and motion picture grosses. His early career coincided with technical recording innovations such as the microphone. How'd they do it before the microphone? (laughs) They have a stenographer or something. (laughs) (laughs) This allowed him to develop a laid-back, intimate singing style that influenced many of the popular male male singers who followed him, including Perry Cuomo, Frank Sinatra, Dick Hames, and Dean Martin. Now, you know, I know all those names. I'm sure you've heard all those names. I've heard of them, yeah. And, And, I mean, these are guys that were influenced by Bing Crosby, and it's just, it's like... Huh, kind of makes you wonder, you know, if somebody like Bing Crosby hadn't come around, where would music have gone? Oh, there's a lot of if-thens. We could we could spend hours doing if-thens. So Yank Magazine recognized Crosby as the person who had done the most for American GI morale during World War II, and during his peak years around 1948, American polls declared him as the, quote, most admired man alive, unquote, ahead of Jackie Robinson and Pope Pius XII. 
Also in 1948, the Music Digest estimated that Crosby's recordings filled more than half of the 80,000 weekly hours allocated to recorded music radio. Wow. So 40,000 hours a week he was being played at his height. <laughs> and he was bigger than the Pope. And he was bigger than the Pope. Damn. Yeah. And I, I mean... I knew this song, actually. Before we even got into this, I knew this song. Yeah, I did, too. It was one of those, I mean, I didn't realize the lyrics were goofy. Right. Um, but I knew the chorus of it, and then I listened to the whole thing. I'm like, that's kind of silly. Yeah, I, but... It's, it's it's serious, but it's not really... doesn't take itself seriously. Right, right. No, I totally get you on that one. So we jumped to 1945, Till the End of Time by Perry Como. Let's listen to this number one that was at the top for 10 weeks. Till the end of time Long as roses bloom in May My love for you will grow deeper With every passing day So... Pierno Ronald Perry Como was an American singer and television personality. During a career spanning more than half a century, he recorded exclusively for RCA Victor for 44 years after signing with the label in 1943. And you get people who can't even stick with a with a record label for like a year before they jump ship. Right. 44 years. That's a long. That's that's longer than we've been alive. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You're right. Exactly. So anyway, Mr. C, as he was nicknamed, sold millions of records for RCA and pioneered a musical variety television show. Como was seen weekly on television from 1949 to 1963, then continued hosting the Craft Music Hall Variety Program monthly until 1967. His television shows and seasonal episodes were broadcast throughout the world. Also a popular recording artist, Perry Como released numerous hit records from the 1940s through the 1970s. Como's appearance spanned generations, and he was universally respected for both his professional standards and the conduct in his personal life. Perry Como, he's just he's a he's a stand-up guy. Regardless of what you think of his music, which for the most part, I mean, it's it was not bad. No, it's not bad. It was very 40s. Yeah. I mean, but he did change with the times. So I don't know. I this song. Didn't do a ton for me. I wouldn't say it's bad though. It's it was, no. It's a good. It's got a good melody to it. It's just a decent song. It's it's there. It's music. It's decent. It's it's okay. <laughs> and there you have it, folks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 1946. The Gypsy by the Ink Spots. This one kind of. I don't know how to put this one. This one kind of threw me for a loop because it was called the Ink Spots. I expected to see this nice group of young white guys you know kind of thing but it's not it's a group of black guys it kind of threw me for for a loop but as i listen to the song they actually they're, they're very good artists they're very good singers but i felt kind of bad because i'm like you know because it's the 40s you're expecting to see a group of white guys and you get this group of black guys and you're like they they did that you know and honestly my first thought was when i saw the name i thought of something like a group of uh, ladies actually kind of like the cordettes or the crystals or okay. things like that which was later on i believe but um the ink spots i thought was going to be like maybe a trio or quartet of ladies and i was vastly surprised when i heard the song <laughs> uh, why don't we take a quick listen in a quaint caravan there's a lady they call the gypsy 
She can look in the future and drive away all your fears. All right, so what you but it didn't do it for me. No, I, I wasn't a fan. I mean, they they had good harmony and parts, and they they all sang where they're supposed to. But yeah, it just really didn't do much for me. But the Ink Spots were an American pop vocal group who gained international fame in the 30s and uh, 40s. Their unique musical style led to the rhythm and blues and rock and roll musical genres and the subgenre doo-wop. The Ink Spots were widely accepted in both the white and black communities, largely due to the ballad style introduced to the group by lead singer Bill Kenny. This number one lasted for 10 weeks. In 1989, the Ink Spots, Bill Kenny, Deke Watson, Charlie Fuqua, and Hoppy Jones were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in 1999, they were inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame. Since the Ink Spots disbanded in 1954, there have been well over 100 vocal groups calling themselves the Ink Spots, without any right to the name, and without any original members of the group. These groups have often claimed to be second-generation or third-generation Ink Spots. So that's one, this is one of those bands... So, so the Ink Spots that just didn't come out in the wash. <laughs> I guess. But this is, this is one of those things where you have a group here who obviously had a lot of drive and... and influence on what came after them right but nobody i've never heard of the ink spots no no i no i, I don't even i did not hear of them there you go you got it out i was i'm, I'm proud of you buddy yeah, it's, it's been one of those days <laughs> all right so let's jump into 1947 heartaches uh this is another instrumental that took the top spot by ted weems and his orchestra wilfred theodore ted weems wilfred God, you know, I do like old names. Both of my daughters have old names. But sometimes you just get an old name like Wilfred, and you're like, and then you think of Wilfred Brimley, of course. And his diabetes. Diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> As we're laughing about like a debilitating disease. So that's great. Hey, I have that debilitating disease, supposedly. Well, no, not supposedly I have disease. It's supposedly debilitating. It depends on the person, I guess. And how you deal with it. Right. So um, Ted Weems was an American band leader and musician. Weems' work in music was recognized with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. This 12-week number one shares the honors for 1947 with another song that we'll talk about soon. Let's listen to this one. Weems was a Victor band from 1923 through 1933, although the final three sessions were released on Victor's newly created Bluebird label. He then signed with Columbia for two sessions in 1934 and subsequently signed with Decca from 1936. Weems also co-wrote several popular songs, The Martins and the McCoys, Jig Time, The One Man Band, Three Shiftless Skonks, and Old Mona, which he co-wrote with band member Country Washburn. I don't know. This song, instrumental, I actually kind of like this one. It was relaxing to me. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of relaxing. It's something, something you put on the on the, uh, the radio in the room at night when you're just kind of trying to chill out and maybe read a book with it in the background kind of thing. I was thing. just going to say that. It was like it would be put on my chill list. Where yeah. It's like you throw that in the background and 
I don't need to really focus on it. I don't need to like if you for me at least if I put a song on, I'm like trying to remember the lyrics and trying to think who did it and so on and so forth. Whereas if you put an instrumental on, it's just like I don't have to think. It's just I can be into it. Yeah. And I think that's what this one worked out really well for. Yeah, absolutely. So the other one from 1947, the song Near You by Francis Craig and his orchestra. This also lasted for 12 weeks. So between the two of these songs, they took half a year. Francis Craig was an American songwriter and leader of a Nashville dance band. His works included Dynamite and Near You. Let me take a pause on this one. A Nashville dance band. Yes. In fact, I don't have it in here, I don't think, but it was the only, it was the first band out of Nashville to have a number one on a pop chart. Wow. Well, let's listen to this uh, 12-week number one. There's just one place for me. It's like heaven to be near you Times when we're apart I can't face my heart Say you'll never stray More than just two lips away So a lot of information for Francis Craig wasn't out there. He seems to have come and gone and didn't really leave much of a footprint. Now, the song, I found it quite annoying. <laughs> you know, it was it was very, I don't know, the register seemed high for whoever was singing it. And it just kind of, I don't know, I just didn't enjoy it. It wasn't, I wasn't a big fan. It had a little bit of a chalkboard nails thing for me. Yes, exactly. And I was glad to be done with it. Okay. So, 1948, we're going to have fun with this oh, one. Oh, God. So, Manana is Good Enough for Me by Peggy Lee. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna kind of put you on the spot here, but what's the first thing you said to me about that song? It was as offensive as hell. <laughs> it was. So, Peggy Lee, born Norma Dolores Eggstrom. Wasn't she just like kind of like an all-American, like, nice girl? She was. But that song, I mean, she sang it with a horrendous... Like Puerto Rican accent. Yeah, it was horribly... Horribly. That and just just the the words that are used. I mean, just the story itself that it tells is just like I won't get a job today. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. I'm just like, holy crap, dude. I know. I'm listening to that song and I'm like, can we play this? Uh, she was an American jazz and popular music singer, songwriter, composer, and actress in a career spanning six decades. From her beginning as a vocalist on local radio to singing with Benny Goodman's big band, she forged a sophisticated persona evolving into a multifaceted artist and performer. During her career, she wrote music for films, acted, and recorded conceptual record albums that combined poetry and music. Here, let's take a listen. My mother thinks I'm lazy, and maybe she is right. I'll go to work mañana, but I gotta sleep tonight. Mañana, mañana, mañana is soon enough for me. All right, so she... Recorded conceptual record albums. What year did they stop calling them record albums? <laughs> Isn't that kind of one of those, uh, like, double where they say the same thing twice? Kind of like ATM machine when yeah. it's, like, automated uh, teller teller machine, 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 machine. Machine, Yeah, so anyway, this song was atop the hit list for nine weeks in 1948. I don't know how. I don't think this song could get airplay today. No, it's <laughs> apparently for nine weeks, people didn't give a shit about political correctness. Well, it was 1948, then, they, too. then again, they didn't back then either. But yeah, I just, I listened to this one and I, you, you even see my notes. I wrote, holy offensive, Batman. 
I was just, I was floored. I'm just like, especially coming out of that time. Yeah. I mean, because everything was pretty squeaky clean back then. And then you get this one, it's just like, wow. Yeah. So to round out this decade, 1949, Ghost Riders in the Sky, a cowboy legend by Vaughn Monroe and his orchestra. Now, anybody out there, especially if you're a fan of the Ghost uh, Rider uh, movies, have heard this song. Okay, you've heard a version of this song. Who did it in the Ghost Rider movie? <sighs> I don't know, honestly. I mean, I know the cover one that I like, done by the Outlaws, a southern rock band. Okay. Who also did uh, Green Grass and High Tides. Okay. So I was actually pretty excited when I saw this title on there. I'm like, yes! And then you listen to it. And it had to go really slow. It went really slow, and it was very twangy. It was very... Yeah, but you dig that old country, though. Old country, yes, but this but one, this old I did not dig this song at all. But anyway, Vaughn Wilton Monroe was an American baritone singer, trumpeter, big band leader, actor, and businessman, most popular in the 1940s and 1950s. He has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for recording and radio. Uh, let's listen to his 11-week number one, Ghost Riders in the Sky. Saw the riders coming hard, and he heard their mournful cry. Ghost riders in the sky. Monroe recorded uh, extensively for RCA Victor until the 1950s, and his signature tune was Racing with the Moon. It sold over 1 million copies by 1952, becoming Monroe's first million seller, and was awarded a gold disc by the RIAA. Among his other hits were In the Still of the Night, There I Go, There I've Said It Again, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Ballerina, Melody Time, Riders in the Sky, Someday You'll Want Me to Want You, Sound Off, and In the Middle of the House. He also turned down the chance to record Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which went to Gene Autry. Which is probably one of the most well-known versions of that song ever. Yes. I don't know. This song, it was just really slow. It was really twangy. It was very... You know, I'm so used to the song being upbeat and kind of fast moving, and mm-hmm. and this just was not it. Oh, it wasn't. I mean, me personally, part of it, the reason that I really... I don't want to say I enjoyed it. Okay. Because it was all right. The reason I was intrigued by it... There we go. Better way of putting it. I was intrigued by it was because it is the original of a song that I really like the cover. Okay. So, just like I would mentioned in our covers episode way back in the day. Yep. Um, going back and listening to the original versions of songs, I really enjoy doing. And even if they're terrible, um, at least it tells you where it came from and, and how the cover improved upon it in what way. Okay. Like the cover for, for the Outlaws cover, they sped it up. They added um, a southern rock to it instead of being more of a country twang. And it was successful. I but, can buy that, yeah. You know, would the song have never uh, would the song have been around if it wouldn't have been for this dude starting it? Who knows? Fair enough. All right, so that wraps us up. It's a short episode this week, and I think uh, most of these are going to be a short episode. You know, we've kind of went to that hour long theory of doing these, but this wrapped in right around thirty five minutes or so. As always, uh, if you want to drop us a line, let us know what you think of this, what you think of some of the other episodes, feel free to do that. There's a couple ways to do that. First of all, you can send us an email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook at Musically Challenged Podcast. Uh, other than that, any uh, final thoughts for the day? Not, nothing really. Just um, we'll be hitting next week with 
1950s, 50s, yeah. and going from our top 10 there. So maybe if you didn't hear what you thought was an older song, maybe it'll come up on the next one. Quite possible. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.